Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about food. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. We've had a lovely email from the Icon Textile Group. They are looking for conference papers, in fact. The deadline is in December, but it's likely to extend to January. Uh, they're inviting papers and posters from all disciplines of conservation that have ever had an experience with working with textiles and nature. So that's not just textiles as you would normally imagine them. This is for the Spring Forum, which will be held on the 21st of May 2018 in the Museum of London. Presentations should last 20 minutes. Uh, individuals should uh, submit an abstract of no more than 200 words with a title, author biography and contact details. To submit a proposal or to discuss an idea for a paper, you should email Alison Lister. We will pop a link in the show notes to the page where you can contact her. They're looking for papers and posters of a theoretical or practical nature, either on the specific theme of textiles and nature or on a general theme of new developments in the interpretation, care and conservation of textiles. Potential topics for papers include conservation and mounting of items made from materials found in nature, both animal and plant-based, the development of new materials of natural origin, designs and techniques inspired by nature, new insights into the uh, degradation of natural fibres, the care and conservation of textiles and dress featuring natural history specimens, or on taxidermy. Oh, I mean, I guess you don't have to have taxidermy dressed in something. I think I just made that up, but I got excited anyway. Anyway, if you have any fabulous ideas on these topics, then please check out the link in our show notes and submit a paper. Sounds amazing. And now on to our episode. Right, so we're talking food today. Um, I guess first off, what sort of food have we seen in collections ourselves, uh, if any, indeed? I've, the museum that I previously worked in had quite a bit of food, actually, relating to sort of exploration visits and things like that. We had ship's biscuit Um, We had several tins of food, including my absolute favourite, which is self-heating cocoa uh, in a tin. How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I don't want to know. It sounds dangerous. Um, The stuff we had was from, I think I'm just looking this up, uh, was from just after the Second World War. But it, it was quite commonly used in the Second World War as rations for soldiers so they didn't freeze their arse off <laughs> while waiting for the Normandy landings or whatever. Do you stick it in a fire? Is it some sort of exothermic reaction? No, no, no. So uh, the instructions on our tin said self-heating can, instructions for use, shake can, pierce two holes in lid, that's underlined because it's really important that you pierce the lid, not the side, uh, pierce two holes in lid above arrows, lever off centre cap, light wick, wait five oh. minutes, contents then hot, Always pierce can before lighting wick because clearly the holes yes. are to kind of yeah. vent any kind of steam or gases. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I think it was common for these things to explode. I, I was um, going to say, does this double as a weapon? So if you, for, if you don't pierce them, throw them over the trench and hit a German yeah. in the head. <laughs> um, 
But I just thought that that was one of the coolest things I'd, I'd seen in a collection, actually. The that self-heating cool. tin of cocoa. And was it was it used or was it full of self-heating cocoa? No, it was, as far as I'm aware, it was full of cocoa. And I guess, theoretically, we could have pierced the lid and lit the wick inside. Uh, wow. But for obvious reasons, we didn't. Um, I mean, it was pretty cold in our museum store, but even <laughs> I managed to resist the temptation to have a nice mug of 80-year-old cocoa. <laughs> was it deteriorating any, in any way that you could tell? Uh, the tin was rusting, but it wasn't... I mean, that that's the other thing, actually, about tins. So I, I worked in a polar museum, and there are people doing a lot of work conserving um, the tins of food in Antarctica mm-hmm. in the various expedition huts, um, both... Uh, the United Kingdom and Antarctic Heritage Trust and also the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust both have conservation projects out on the ice in Antarctica. And quite a lot of that is to do with conserving the food that is out there that is generally, um, for obvious reasons, quite well preserved, what with very low temperatures being an excellent way of preserving food. And a lot of it was tinned food anyway but there are cases where they've had to open the tins and remove the contents because the cans had started to bulge alarmingly (laughs) and you really don't want to kind of leave that stuff there and risk it um, exploding somewhere speaking of food personally i have seen bulging cans and stuff like uh, tin cans because certainly tinned food is something that i've seen in a lot of collections food has to be left inside I'm never really entirely sure why. If it's just that's part of the object or it's just easier to leave it in or that's someone else's problem in the future. But, oh, when they start to go. <laughs> I, have, I have also found... <laughs> I've also found post-bulging. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, like a nasty, nasty carton of, oh, something's exploded in here. It's, oh, it's so gross. Not great. Uh, I've seen, obviously, rations like we already talked about, uh, more jars, mm. but glass jars, they tend to have different problems. All the things do rust through the lid sometimes, depending on if it's pickled stuff inside, for example. It tends to eat through the little jar, uh, like the little jar yeah. lid. Um, uh, spices, powders, the kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, so like cocoa and coffee and beans mm-hmm. and stuff like that. That sort of thing I've certainly come across. And sugar ornaments. Oh, <laughs> at the same um, museum I was talking about, um, we also had a piece of wedding cake that belonged to Captain Scott, uh, Robert Scott Aww. of the I Antarctic. Quite a lot of different examples of wedding cake in different yeah. collections. Actually, it seems common. Well, ish. I mean, I suppose wedding cake is one of those things that traditionally is kept anyway because the at least in the UK and I don't know if this is different in other countries but in the UK the traditional wedding cake is a rich fruit cake which tends to keep very well on its own anyway and it would normally be covered with marzipan and then with a thick layer of royal icing on top as well mm, which helps yeah. to keep it kind of anoxic <laughs> and um, mm. uh, kind of I, preserve it better that, like, Chloe's making slightly enticed noises and my face <laughs> is one of horror <laughs> This is one of those things that is completely baffling to anyone who's not British, this this love of dried fruit in cakes. No, I realise that from talking to people from elsewhere. But that is the traditional wedding cake. And furthermore, tradition has it that you should keep the top tier of your wedding cake if you have one of these ones that comes in two, three, four tiers. You don't cut it up at the wedding reception. You keep the top tier and then you have it when your first child is baptised, apparently. Oh, so um, 
we had far too much wedding cake at our wedding uh, and kept it um, and just put it in a Stuart box, in a Tupperware box and forgot about it and didn't then uh, have a child until more than five years later. Um, and he wasn't baptised, but kind of like when he was around two, we were like, oh, yeah, that wedding cake that we all completely <laughs> forgot about that's in a Tupperware box somewhere in the attic. Let's go and get it and find out what it's like. So we got it out. And, oh, my God, the smell was indescribable. Oh, God. Um, it was basically rotting marzipan. Oh, no. Um, and I think the cake bit was basically okay. But um, I suspect if you're going to do this, for, I, I, I think this tradition probably sprang, out, sprang up in a time when people would expect to have their first child within a year of getting married rather than, like, five years later like yeah. we did. Um, and then forget about it. And so <laughs> you're probably not really meant to keep it that long. But, That's a fantastic uh, yeah. anecdote. <laughs> I suspect you're probably meant to take the marzipan off before keeping it, because I think that's probably the weak point. The, the, the icing is probably fine. Um, and the also, cake is probably okay. Yeah. Is that possibly to do with the fact that it was fully sealed and possibly a tiny bit damp? Because... Yeah, I mean, it's probably due to our own shoddy collection care skills at home as well, but... <laughs> Shame on you, of course. You should be. Anyway, we didn't eat it. We just quietly disposed of it. And I'm sure all kinds of ill fortune is going to befall our family as a result. And it'll just all be hideous. But um, yeah. So I'd I'd also love to hear if anybody has successfully kept the top tier of their wedding cake and eaten it. And whether it was better. And fruitcake's mature. What happened to you afterwards? (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) Possibly nobody's going to reply because they're all dead. But... Oh, it got really dark. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, no, I, I wasn't even aware. I wasn't even aware. I thought people just kind of kept a slice to kind of be symbolic of something or something. But no, I, I didn't know that you kept such a large proportion of the... I suppose it's the smallest tier, but even so. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you a giant cake and not very many guests. It'd be all right. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. Um, my experience of food and collections was a couple of different things. I've only really been responsible for deciding or give it, providing advice on on a couple of occasions uh, and currently castle museum that i volunteered in a few years ago uh, one week i came into the museum and um the collections manager said oh can you have a look at look at this um at this box we we went into the, the store and um there was this smell <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you know, you instantly think, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> I don't want to deal with whatever it is that smells. Oh. Um, and it was um, a box of confectionery chocolate bar type things in amongst other food items, wrapped food items like crisps and little cake bar type things that were only probably, I'd say, under 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um and there was definitely a very sort of strange, sweet, slightly orangey smell coming off of it. And some of the wrappers had burst um, just mm. a bit. Uh, and it was basically just, you know, there were food items. They'd been stored perfectly well. They were nicely pack- packed up and stuff, but they were in a damp store. So that was the point that I did some research on what do you do with food items? And I asked some advice from a previous employer and who also had food items to deal with. And that's why I thought to contact them. And basically, my question was, how do you properly store food items? And the reply was, why do you want to keep them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, there's a valid question. Yeah. Because I feel like quite a lot of 
quite a lot of the time these things are it's representative packaging for example mm-hmm. like, yeah exactly it's, it's yeah. an iconic mm-hmm. tin or it's a special type of jar and the label is really important mm-hmm. but the actual contents is less so but when it was accessioned uh, it wasn't necessarily then the nuance thought. wasn't considered yes yeah uh, and i mean i'm not saying empty out all your jars either because you know there could be some some scientific value probably to keep to keeping something mm-hmm. but it, it does pose an interesting conundrum further down the line yeah yeah then my, my current um my current thing is um a lollipop oh that is obviously going sticky and leaking everywhere because it's not being stored in dry conditions so i'm of two minds when it comes to this sort of thing of i believe that everything is fine as long as you store it correctly but some of that storage might be (laughs) freezing it which is difficult to maintain reliably or you know just the standard silica gel packing i did read that some museums do have like a dedicated fridge for example for their for their food collection items and that sort of thing, just to keep them at a lower temperature than everything else. So it's just, you know, kind of a corner of the store yeah. with a fridge plugged in, Yeah, uh, which is an interesting notion. I've also heard people do that with cellulose nitrate, mm-hmm. for example, because mm-hmm. they can't have a can have a dedicated room, but they can have yeah. a fridge. But, you know, it's one of those things. Difficult for display, though. Yes. To go back to why museums might want to keep the things, I guess they may have some research value. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking of some of the very sort of um, ancient archaeological food oh, remains that yeah. there are in museums and, and things um, like uh, the wheat grains that they found in ancient Egyptian tombs, which enable archaeologists to find out a lot about the species of wheat that was grown and, and quite a lot about diet and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, And I think there's somebody once made some beer from some barley grains that had come from i'm not sure they can really have come from an egyptian tomb that sounds quite dubious doesn't it but um but uh, but anyway when, when you're not just kind of making novelty beers then you know i think there probably is also a legitimate uh, research interest for keeping these things but that's that's not obviously why a lot of museums do keep them i guess in fact, um, some there was an interesting article in History Today a couple of months ago, and that was uh-huh. all, ab- all about mummy wheat. So wheat that Ooh. had been found in tombs w- was sold at a ridiculously high price, of course, because it was believed that they were somehow infused with extra power and that grain that grew in ancient Egyptian times was extra special. So people tried all over the world to grow this from these uh-huh. few grains mm-hmm. and mm. of course nobody was successful but um or i think maybe one person was or something but it was a really fascinating article and it's yeah it's ludicrous the amount of stuff that basically charlatans they it's not necessarily even from a tomb it's yeah. just that it's the selling power of mm-hmm. mummy wheat and mm. growing something <laughs> super special uh, as a rich person with far too much time and botanical <laughs> interest, uh, which is ludicrous. But it was a really interesting article. And if I can dig something up, uh, I'll put it in the show notes, but I'm not, not sure if I can find that sort of thing because it's in a paid magazine. But that's a, there's a big difference in the different types of food, isn't there? Because you've got your dry goods that were sort of either either have dried and that's why they've survived or they are fairly dry things like bread like you know a dry toast or a biscuit or something so the ethnographic museums like the pit rivers and the horniman 
have <gasps> food in they, their collections. And also they have actual, uh, did you read about these, the cheese figures? Yes. And the bread that figures. Is, that's what, so. No, what? Post. Yes, <laughs> genuinely actual figures there made is out a, of cheese uh, I believe bread. it's, oh wow. July the 18th, 2013. Um, Bunga Lincoln. Hornman, thank, yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, Horneman blog post about the food in their collections. Um, and it's very interesting. It's, it reminded also kind me, of beautiful. Like, beautiful, it's, yeah. You know, really it's like lovely. proper sculpture, food yeah, sculpture. Really cute. And cute little chicken thing as well. Um, <laughs> sorry to catch you while you're drinking that. <laughs> I was drinking some tea then. Excellent timing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it remind, reminded me of the Pit Rivers, their sorts of food-based collections. And it's, you know, uh, scone, biscuits, that sort of thing. Stuff that's supposed to be dry. So you've got that stuff. In my mind, you've also got the stuff that's sort of designed to keep, like astronaut food and yeah. space food. Something freeze-dried, yeah. for example. Yeah, it's yeah. freeze-dried or it's been packaged. So it, the or whole idea that is, is that it lasts hundreds of years. lasts forever and ever and ever that's another that's, type that's and then kind of the, the case with the sugar ornaments that i mentioned mm -hmm, like yeah. the reason they've lasted a hundred years is that it's like it is pure sugar it's not sticky yeah it's just kind of a solid form mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of dry as well mm -hmm. and it's super hard yeah so it, it kind of lends itself to being preserved yeah it, yeah absolutely and then there's the the stuff that is packaged and the stuff that's packaged, I, the fresh, freshish stuff that's packaged, that's the stuff that worries me because it's like the chocolate bars in wrappers or the frightening ones like beer in glass bottles oh, yeah, yeah. or cans or something mm. because that's the kind of stuff that will internally deteriorate and then cause some poor conservator somewhere a hideous mess <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like the one you discovered <laughs> and even, I'd actually love and even to that hear one stories. was thankfully relatively localised you know it was within the box everything else could be wiped off yeah um, <laughs> oh the smell if you have any fun, this is what I discovered, food-related <laughs> stories, uh, please write in because I'd love to have horror stories told. <laughs> but there's lots of different places we can find information. There was actually a, an icon workshop uh, earlier in this year, in February, in Switzerland. Um, the Cans Project of basically cans containing food and what to do about it, basically. If anyone went to that, we'd love to yes. hear from you. Yes, that would be really interesting. If anyone wants, if anyone has any notes or comments or reviews from that, that would be great. Yeah, or photos or anything. The conservation of uh, modern art literature as well might have some interesting bits and pieces. I haven't yeah. been able to find much publication of conservation of food, you know, that you can buy from Amazon or anything like that. Um, it's probably seen as a bit niche, even though it it's is, actually yeah. everywhere. Yeah, but I think one. modern art, literature, that sort of thing, because occasionally you get sculptures out of bread and stuff again. Um, That's a bit like how that artwork out of meat that Sophie mentioned oh. a few episodes ago, where it exists only as a set of instructions now. Yes, yes, that's, yeah. The thing is, a lot of the food that you get, I mean, it's just materials, so materially, it's not going to be that different from other things that you might encounter in museums anyway, I would have thought. You know, you were saying bread, but that's essentially just carbohydrates and I guess a bit of water and whatever else there yes. is in bread, proteins and whatever. But I mean, it's, it's, is it fundamentally that different from, I don't know, like paper? <laughs> 
I suppose it's it's the enzyme content, fats and moisture. I, in some ways, I suppose it's just being uh, risk aware, just like we're aware mm-hmm. with pests with anything, much like yeah. mm-hmm. you keep a fur in a in a really yeah. kind of. Um, clean environment you'd have to do the same with food because again it's a source of food for other things not just us not that we'd nibble on a bread sculpture <laughs> so i suppose um i mean pest pests are obviously one of the big mm. topics really here yeah. and, um, and obviously biohazards like mold can i fit in Ooh. first because um it's relevant to what oh, we we're yeah. just saying Sorry. about a study of um of a material study of foodstuffs yeah, go for quickly it. before we talk about pests because yeah, I feel yeah. like this is a different, oh, yeah, yeah. A different section fine. of the topic. Um, there is actually a really interesting um, study done by Emily Hamilton um, in 2011. I get the impression it's a sort of dissertation thesis type thing, but we'll put it in the show notes. Called the analysis and treatment of food artifacts, uh, sugar paste wedding cake topper, and President Grover Cleveland's wedding cake, and it is a uh, materials analysis and literature review of food and specifically cake and deterioration of those materials, why they deteriorate, what's causing them to deteriorate, depending on whether it's cooked um, and that sort of thing. And then uh, the case studies with different treatment, um, trials for treatment, and then the results of treatment. and I found that very interesting in terms of how to approach conserving cake, particularly. Mm. Um, and it was, as as I said, a, a piece of wedding cake, um, relevant to our earlier example. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, and shall we have a guess at the, the consolidant that's best used for consolidating wedding cake? And the kind of consolidant you could have used for your wedding cake, Christina? It's going to be paramount. <laughs> It is parallel. Do you want it, it? Do you want it to remain edible or not? I suppose is one of the questions. <laughs> no, I want no. unappealing. In which case, I would have thought something like wheat starch would be. <laughs> not that that would work very well as a consolidant, but it Je- would remain Jenny's edible. Jenny's guess was right. It was paraloid. I think I... she caught the expression on my face of yeah, you get. <laughs> would that not massively affect the? Because um, wedding cake is quite porous. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say you're going to end up with like quite a solid matte. slab. Like it's going to be. I think yeah. I don't. Is it not going to saturate it and change the, the color a lot and make it quite plasticky well, looking? Change might be relatively subtle depending on what I you think, use. Yeah, for some of the um, examples, they they use different different solvents, different concentrations. So I think for the cake, it was a five percent in ethanol. Mm. Um, but again, I would encourage anyone interested. I would encourage you to read the full study because I, I did only skim through it as a oh, I wonder what they used kind of thing, <laughs> and have full full time to do a proper a proper appraisal of the whole thing. But they I can't be- believe you described it as a literature review about cake. That is one of the coolest publications I've ever heard. <laughs> Just have to I say. Don't, I don't know if I used the correct phrase, but <laughs> uh, it was a, more, a, yeah, a, a sort of a study of what, what is cake and what, what does it do? Basically lipids and enzymes and what they do and why they're problematic to us and that sort of thing. And the use of uh, glass microballoons and all sorts of different solvents. Oh. Um, <laughs> barrier layers which i found particularly interesting as well so i i thought that was good as good to read as a study because there's lots of different things to consider so yeah that that was interesting do you know that's that's made me think one of the problems really when approaching the conservation of food items is knowing what you're 
end point is what are you aiming for yeah so a lot of the time the ways that we could prolong the life of food radically change the appearance of that food mm-hmm. um, so you might be able to preserve cake by letting it dry out that's mm-hmm. obviously a good way to stop it from going moldy is just let it kind of naturally desiccate a bit and essentially go stale um, and if you do that slowly enough then eventually cake does just go completely dry but then it's got quite a different texture it doesn't Mm -hmm. really look like cake anymore and so on so i suppose consolidating it with b72 likewise is a good way of preserving its integrity but Mm -hmm. does that change its appearance quite a lot so that it no longer looks like cake as you would understand cake or do we just have to accept that food items are incredibly difficult to preserve and some kind of change in their physical properties is, I think is going to be inevitable. the latter. Um, I'd say the latter, to be honest, because it, it's one of these, you know, you want it to survive, but it's almost impossible, basically. It's, it's just going to deteriorate. I think the first example I heard of this was a friend. He was given a piece of wedding cake again. Wedding cake is everywhere. Just eat it, guys. <laughs> um, I mean, at your wedding, don't eat <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> And he he was given this piece of wedding cake and he basically his his uh, response to the person who had given to him to conserve it was, all I can do to this is pack it full of consolidant. It's going to change mm. the, it's going to change the qualities. I can literally just make it a slab. But that's, you know, if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. And you've still got the shape. In mm. theory, you could still extract material from it to do any sort of chemical analysis. Mm. But... I don't know if somebody presented you with like a strawberry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, okay, so... Yeah. So you, okay. can pre- you can preserve that by freeze-drying it. I mean, they, they freeze-dry strawberries and you can get them in breakfast cereal and whatever. And those will... You can keep those for a very, very long time. True. But it no longer looks like a fresh strawberry. Could, I mean, you, could you shove peg into it, do you think? Oh, ew. I feel like it would degree <laughs> <laughs> No, I, well, I mean... Oh, you mean after freeze-drying? No, I mean, okay, so I'm probably. Just replace certain- all the water in the strawberry with pay. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. I know oh. this is probably one of those situations where <laughs> this kind of thing you say among friends only. And then if you, for example, <laughs> announce it to a wider profession <laughs> publicly, <laughs> people will instantly go, What? Of course you can't for all of these proper reasons that you should know about. So I'm just going to ignore all of that and say, I wonder um, if you could replace the water. As you ju- as you would with with uh, with waterlogged wood. Waterlogged, yeah. <laughs> Could you do that and then freeze dry it? Would it? Would that work? <laughs> it's a um, I have a friend who um, works for a large archaeological trust that does quite a lot of the um, peg treatments in this country, and I can ask her if oh she would God. mind slipping a strawberry into the peg. Tank. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe we like should next start summer when with they're in like season, less but... water. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should start with less water-dependent fruits. But then I don't even know. Maybe it would be. Maybe it's better if something has more water in it. To swear, I feel like we're going off topic. <laughs> okay, brain and back. I feel like we're right, back so, directly so, on so, topic. Yeah, pests. Yeah, pests. Obviously, that's the problem. It's bad. Obviously, we're going to worry about that. Yeah, but then I've oh, everything molds. Jesus. It's, it's I feel true. defeated by the whole problem. Now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ha- have a sip of tea. It's gonna be okay. But is there any value? Okay, so I guess because we already talked about archaeological food stuff and that there's immense value in uh, looking at the DNA and all that stuff just to figure out what 
uh, what kind of strains of wheat and all that stuff, like mm-hmm. what, what yeah. people used. So should we be aiming to keep stuff for the same reason? So people know what pickling was like in the 1950s. And so people know what chocolate was like in the 1800s. I mean, is, is that why we keep them? I think keeping some 1950s British food as a sort of cautionary tale to make sure that <laughs> our cuisine never goes like that again would be quite a good idea. I think, I, I think food is really important because we all eat food and it's a, it gives us a very kind of direct window into other cultures. It is very um, relatable. You know, you can you can imagine that that culture so much more easily if you imagine if you know what they ate and what it looked like and ideally what it smells like and what it tastes like. But that's one of the problems with food in museums is that literally you just look at it and even that might not be very useful if it's changed tremendously in in appearance. Um, I guess food is kind of a working object in that sense, in that it only yeah. really makes sense if you're eating it. But yeah. <laughs> that's not a very helpful line of thought for food in museums. Jenny, you have a the museum you're currently working in has a working kitchen, doesn't it? So that yeah, that brings that a totally true. different. Yeah. I've been thinking of this very much the food in museum collections way, but mm. there's actually our interaction with as museums our interactions with food or as conservatives our interactions with food within the museums is going to be something we all have to deal with at some point yeah no it's it's true so we have a working victorian kitchen with a a nice range of stuff that is regularly used uh, the way you would use it and people make food on it the kind of food that you would have in victorian times for example so uh, it's it's very much showing people what food and cooking was like back then and then people Mm -hmm. get to actually try it so you know it is all perfectly edible and encouraged for people to come and join in and and try it yeah so it's that's kind of living history really Uh, and again that's making food relatable I guess but again it's just to kind of make this clear it's a museum and in the center of the museum there is a kitchen that is a working kitchen preparing hot food but they're in in a kind of almost a reenactment way. Although mm-hmm. I mean, the food's real. <laughs> but you know, you know, it's um, yeah. Again, it's it's kind of a, more of a living food heritage kind of thing. So, do you think that's more kind of appropriate or, or more useful, or even in museums, than the kind of dead food that we deal with as conservators? I think so. I think it's so much more relatable than seeing a, a tin in a in a in a glass case to to actually be able to come and see someone make some food uh, and, and then have a taste of it if you want to. Uh, I, I think that's actually, I, I think I think it's a really good alternative, basically. Not that everyone has a, has a working Victorian kitchen. No, but actually um, that, that sort of made me think of some, another way that museums have food and that's museum cafes. Yeah. This, uh, yeah which we all love to hate. On the spider <laughs> yes. diagram. I've just turned over I was my say, pattern. What waiver makes a good one, by the way? <laughs> On my uh, on my in museums spidergram, there is cafes in big writing and uh, in capital letters crisps exclamation mark exclamation. Oh. <laughs> How come? Uh, I mean, I went up slightly off topic here. Um, talking of the the cafes in terms of uh, food within museums and the proximity to collections. No, and, but that's also important. Yeah. Well. Y- yes. Um, particularly as it's something that is so important to the way that muse- museums are now. Um, well, it's, but it's also, 
I guess it's it's an important income stream for a yeah, lot of exactly. museums. So they have exactly. cafes, sometimes even restaurants. Yeah, and in the same way, hiring out the spaces for external events. Yeah, um, and having internal exhibition openings and stuff where people are carrying crisps around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more concerned about the wine. I'm going to be honest with uh, you. Um, true. Yeah, I'm more concerned about that side of things. I feel like I uh, Hoover a bit extra afterwards. <laughs> I went to an Icon Archaeology Group Christmas party about 10 years ago where um, people were invited to share their greatest conservation cock-ups, either anonymously or if you're feeling brave brilliant. enough in person. I think person. we need a feature like that on the show. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Carry and, uh, well, we can put another form on the website so you yes. can do it anonymously. <laughs> uh, but one of these people was a very senior conservator who was at a drinks reception in an actual gallery and managed to stumble and throw an oh. entire glass of red wine up the wall <laughs> in the gallery. Did it hit um, anything? I don't know. <laughs> um. Wow. But, uh, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why... Uh, having these things in museum galleries is not necessarily a great idea. But then I've been for a three-course dinner in a museum gallery before, which felt really wrong. Whoa. Okay, I've not seen that done, but certainly nibbles and uh, light food, maybe sandwiches, that sort of thing. Okay, so I guess this is coming down to food policies in museums and stuff like that and uh, looking at where people are allowed to eat and under what circumstances you might change that. So... Events are obviously uh, uh, one where a bit of leeway is needed. You can't also, tell people you not to also, eat and what to eat and stuff. Well, it's also common sense in some ways, because obviously if you need the income stream from the special mm-hmm. events, then you can risk assess, is it worth having food and drink in this gallery? If And for example, uh, yes, if we do extra cleaning afterwards, or yes, but only if it's not red wine, only white wine, mm-hmm. so there's less staining risk. Yes, uh, and that's there's nothing sort of, on open display. Yeah, so it's, I guess it's more, uh, we're, co- we're coming back to risk assessments there, where it's, um, as a conservator, you should ideally have some input into that so that you can say, we can be in this gallery, but we definitely can't be in that gallery because of these reasons. Uh, so could we just block that one off whilst the event is on, for example, that sort of thing. Um, it's interesting when it's everyday used and telling visitors that you have to eat in designated areas. That can be an interesting one. Sometimes not met with uh, delight, I shall have to say. <laughs> People do like eating just out of convenience. And uh, let's be fair, we all get peckish, but please, please, can you eat your crisps in the cafe? <laughs> please. <laughs> I think the trouble is, though, I've I've been, because I've got small children, um, the museums I've been in recently tend to be the kind of ones that are that um, seek to attract families with small children, in fact. Um, and two I've been to recently are London's Transport Museum and the National Railway Museum. And both of them have a cafe or an eating area where you can eat your sandwiches, whatever. But it is literally just an area in the main exhibition space. And it's not very clearly demarcated. Um, it's just kind of you sit up this end of the thing and eat your sandwiches here. Here are some tables and chairs and whatever. But there's not a very kind of clear transition from the it's OK to eat here, but it's not OK to eat here by this bus kind of um, That's interesting area. Me, and I think that does. It, I mean, generally, people were did seem to be being quite sensible and just eating in the eating area. But it's not like it was kind of roped off or barriered off or whatever. They were just kind of relying on people 
wanting to do the right thing and understanding that it's okay to eat your crisps here but not here 10 meters away and and you were literally in the middle of the the sort of gallery areas as well so it did kind of feel a bit weird eating yeah that is a bit weird your lunch while surrounded by objects but when i I guess that's that's a pragmatic when i when i've seen that done it's been a very separate room or like you go through this door and then it's okay to to eat i've not seen it done like in a gallery space no 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 they're definitely i mean these are very very large gallery spaces so in transport museum Museum, it's essentially the entire gallery space and in yeah. i mean i guess they also are taking the view that maybe large transport objects are not as vulnerable in the same way i don't mm. know again there would have been a, a an element of risk assessment there yeah but and, i mean and, I, I guess it's it's kind of important to say that because it's it's in that particular hall it kind of has closed carriages around it you can go into some bits of it but not everything so it's not Mm -hmm. like it's uh, a traditional exhibition space Uh, it's more of an experience space where it's kind of all a bit interactive and stuff so it is i guess marginally different from the really traditional Mm -hmm. eating amongst the display cases which i think would be a bit weirder also you've not except that the things in display cases are in display cases so are arguably less vulnerable yeah yeah it's true it's kind of funny like that but i'd still feel super uncomfortable (laughs) I think I'm I'm less uncomfortable if you avoid things that make crumbs and things that splash but then also oh, good luck with that in a museum cafe <laughs> I know I know <laughs> what what would you propose we eat celery or <laughs> <laughs> only bananas <laughs> god I don't know I don't think I'd ever ever propose that anyone ever eat celery <laughs> Unless it's an ingredient, in which case it's tasty. All right, fine. We're having braised <laughs> celery for dinner. I like celery. Oh, well, I mean, each to their own. All right. Each to their own. But actually, okay, so what, what, would it, what would you be okay with people eating in a museum space? I was just about to ask you that question. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, the trouble is a lot of the things they sell are the very kind of carby and therefore mm-hmm. attractive to pests kind mm-hmm. of things yeah, like muffins. sandwiches and cakes yeah. and muffins and yeah. crisps so what's and the context is this in a cafe or say at a high income generating event like a wedding <laughs> i feel like i feel I like if you, you have a high income generating event then you can the extra expense of cleaning can be spent so let them eat cake. <laughs> so let them eat cake. By um, the way, by the way, on the topic of cake, just a really, really quick thing. Again, I'm going to put this on the show notes. Did you know that there, there's at least one museum that makes Mondrian cake? Uh, <gasps> such mo- a good reaction. Modern art desserts. And uh, yeah, this, this is generally a thing. Oh my god! I'm, all oh my all god. of your faces. This is great. I'm, I'm popping a link in. Yeah, uh, generally Mondrian cake. <laughs> oh my god. It's a slice of Mondrian. That is I so need cool. To Google this immediately. Is it? Is it? Is it like Mondrian? Sort of? Is it like a sort of square cake where the top of it looks like a Mondrian painting, or is it no, no, like the, a Battenberg in, in, cake where you cut slices yes, and eat yes, slices? It's, it's basically Battenberg. <laughs> oh my god, Mondrian. that is so cool. Oh my god, yes. I'm so glad I introduced you to something new. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, it comes from a book called something like Modern Art Desserts uh, as well. I mean, it's served in museum shops, but it's it's from a book. If if I can get hold of the book, I, I may squeeze it in as a bonus review or something just because it's really <laughs> hilarious. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, that was just a kind of a, a, a side note that, hey, some museums serve Mondrian cake. <laughs> Carry on. That's amazing. 
I can't even remember what we're talking about. Well, okay, so okay, so we talked about. Uh, we were saying that oh, we yes. would let people have cake if they were paying us a load of money to have a wedding there, but that the museum <laughs> cafe people can only eat celery and bananas. I think. Was- okay, so now you put it like that, it sounds extremely unethical. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, as you, as you said earlier, the museum cafes often bring in a lot of money. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's the kind of deal, in a way, isn't it? Is that we accept the extra risk and the extra housekeeping work and so on in exchange for the money because people are more likely to stay longer and museum cafes are all horrifically expensive. So presumably they're making massive fat profits. Mm. I don't know. I've I've seen um, one of the nicest things I've seen is at a National Trust property near me where they had a blackboard up that told you um, how many scones they'd sold in the last year, I think it was, and how how much money that raised for conservation of the house. Oh, that's oh. amazing. And therefore kind of like making a direct link between uh, people eating there's... scones in the cafe and things being preserved in the house, which I thought was I like nice. that. That is nice. But okay, so we've talked about visitors eating food. How about uh, the people working in the building eating food? Um, you could well, see my okay, lips so the, the reason I bring this up mm-hmm. is that there's actually a survey from 2014 called basically about food in museums done by the Society for the Preservation of Natural History Collections uh, in America. It was answered by 351 museums in 21 countries and it asked all sorts of questions about having food in museums. Over half of the respondents said they don't have any written uh, guidelines for food in their institutions. So that's that's about 60% of people had no guidelines whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the 40% who did say they had some said they weren't updated, they weren't really used. <laughs> <laughs> so again, not a stellar start. Um, what types of food service do you have in your institution? Respondents, uh, well, basically special event uh, food was a big deal. Uh, people also had built-in cafes and restaurants, like we already mentioned. Other people had snack bars, coffee carts uh, with food that's prepared off-site or vending machines, which I thought was quite cute. I don't think I've ever seen a vending machine in a museum, probably because I haven't really been <laughs> not a, a large enough one. Not one that wasn't part of the collection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite. Um, but nearly 5% said they allow food in galleries on a normal basis, but 48 0.6% said they allow it during special events. Mm. So there there again we have this thing that it's permissible under special circumstances like an opening night mm-hmm. or a wedding and that sort of thing. 2.6% allow food in collection storage areas and 5.1% allow them in labs. I thought that was a bit interesting. So uh, all labs I've ever been to have a no food yeah. policy where you leave the room if, if mm-hmm. you need to eat something but you you can have a, bo- a bottle of water that is sealed so it's not likely to tip over and splash you with things it's a health and I mean, thing as well though isn't it yeah yeah it's for your own protection yeah <laughs> yes no quite so i found that a bit interesting and the fact that some people eat in food collection uh, sorry in the uh, storage areas worried me a little bit mm. i guess it does depend on what sort of storage area it is because i can see say that your store is mm-hmm. off-site it's in the middle of woodland and <laughs> it's raining heavily outside i can see you having a cheeky sandwich in the door peering yeah. out yeah. i can see that yeah so I'm not saying it's necessarily okay, but I can see it because sometimes these things are built without any facilities for staff whatsoever. Uh, let's let's now not pretend that doesn't that, happen. I think I've probably <laughs> eaten a cereal bar 
at the door of an industrial store before. Yeah, that sort of thing, shivering. right? Because yeah. sometimes it's impossible. Yeah. Um, uh, not not to mention well harsh on anyone who's diabetic and you see it regularly. Oof, yeah. <laughs> um, I think also if if your store just contained uh, rusting archaeological ironwork, for example, then it's you're unlikely deal, yeah. to attract any pests that would do any damage to the collection but if you're in an archive um, that's different yeah then that is quite different so Uh, people said that uh it's a shared deal between custodians and staff uh when it comes to cleaning responsibilities Mm. um let's see Uh, they also asked what methods are used to ensure the food remains only in allowable areas Mostly staff intervention followed by signage. So again, please don't eat in here, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Don't bring an ice cream in, that sort of thing, right? (laughs) They also asked, have collections been affected directly by food or beverages? Um, 16.9% said that they had had some trouble. uh, Spills onto collections or pedestals, pest infestations like cockroaches, mice and fruit flies, condiments and food splashing onto objects, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But that's a relatively low number, which reassures me. That is, I'm surprised at how low that is. So I live in hope that when these special events take place, people are on the best Mm behaviour and it's genuine accidents that kind of end up... Yeah, it also occurs to me that the with the percentages of, yes, it's allowed under special circumstances, that seems to me that the interaction was... We asked conservation, is it okay to have an event where we serve all these foods? And conservation goes, mm, is there any chance we could not? And they, then the high ups go, nope, it's happening. All right, then, says the conservator. And that's, I feel like know, that's probably yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just have to do extra checks kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Cause it's the reality of fundraising. Yeah. And I mean, it also becomes a problem in, museums that are very short on space Mm -hmm. so not everyone has a nice food hall or area where people can go and have like a little picnic so what do you do when there's a huge school group in who's there all day and they need to eat their lunch you you can't drive them out into the museum garden in the rain (laughs) you can't do that so do you allow them to have a tidy lunch in the gallery on this one-off occasion which happens to be all the time or because you 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 can't put you can't put 80 school children in the cafe because the cafe probably doesn't have capacity for that on top of regular customers for example so it's uh it's one of those things that i I suspect happens on the sly every now and then because Mm -hmm. it's the humane thing to do but um you know i still have mixed feelings (laughs) but anyway the main issues identified uh, in the survey was basically lack of official food policies Staff issues, the biggest issue experienced was lack of any decent break or lunchroom facilities, uh, even to store food, not just to consume it. So if there isn't a staff fridge, what do you do? Or if there isn't Mm -hmm. a special cupboard, well, where do you go? Now we, okay, so bringing up an example from my museum, we do have a staff room. It's tiny. It does not fit all the people, which means that people do tend to eat at their desks. Now the desks aren't in the collections, but certainly adjacent to mm-hmm. some of the stores. So because they're forced to, there's not enough space. And nobody's gonna gonna bolt on a bit onto the nice historical building <laughs> just so we can have a bit more space to eat our sandwiches. That's not gonna happen. So people are sometimes forced to eat at their desks and um that sort of thing. But you know, I 
I'm fortunate enough to have a desk, so I don't have to like <laughs> bring it into the lab. Not that I would, but <laughs> but you know, I have the option of the desk at least, which is something. But yeah, like we said, offsite storage facilities might not even have that. Might be lucky to have a loo sometime, for goodness sake. Location of vendor food was another thing that came up. Respondents mentioned that often vendor food is not provided in a purpose-built space, but simply crammed into existing exhibition spaces or public areas. So, for example, a hot dog stand or a coffee stand uh, just kind of uh, in a corner, which, again, generates the kind of mm-hmm. food debris that is uh, quite likely to attract Food pests. debris and sticky fingers. Yeah. And then other than that, you know, special events, uh, that can mm-hmm. be a kind of a risk thing. Yeah, so this is actually an excellent survey. Uh, it is from 2014, but I, I would assume that a lot of it is very much still relevant. Uh, and I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. The I just wanted to throw in that I quite liked researching this episode because the amount of museums of food there are in the world made me quite right. happy. Uh, there's the Museum of Food and Drink in New York. There used to be a British Museum of Food that's now closed. Really? Yeah. It was kind of a special project uh, and it didn't end up having a permanent home. So oh, it's gone that's now. a shame. The Spam Museum in Minnesota. Uh, there's a Frit Museum in Belgium. Ramen Museum in Japan. Kimchi Museum in Korea. Currywurst Museum in Germany. There's some sort of salt, salt museum in Denmark. And basically, there's a wonderful Wikipedia list of food and beverage museums, which we'll put in the show notes. But what amused me most was that if you scroll all the way to the bottom and it's uh, under C also, there's a separate list of chocolate museums. And I'm like, okay, I can see that. And then underneath that, there was a list of potato museums. (laughs) I'm like, who needs that specific list of museums? (laughs) Cool. There are 14 potato museums in seven different countries, by the way. That's your trivia for the day. Thanks very much. I... uh... (laughs) There is also, or at least there used to be, uh, last time I looked, there was an online-only museum called the Carrot Museum. Oh, yes. Oh, I didn't click on that link. What's it like? It's about carrots. <laughs> it's uh-huh. all carrots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what more do you want? <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I'm yes. not sure what I expect. I'll see if I can find a link to it. I found it while looking for carrot recipes. Um, <laughs> and excellent. I certainly found carrot recipes and much more. So maybe Amazing. we could put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, that's uh, everything from us on the topic of food. Stay tuned for a uh, book review or two. Today I'm reviewing a highly topical publication called Food in Museums from 2016, edited by Nina Levent and Irina Di Mihalace, I probably pronounced that wrong, and published by Bloomsbury Academic. I'm reviewing the ebook version of this, so I shan't comment on the physical aspects of the book, but I can tell you about its contents, and let's face it, that's what we're all here for. Um, This book is split into five sections, each dishing out a different take on the subject of food. Part one is an interdisciplinary menu. The papers concern anthropology, child development, neuroscience, art, food photography and of course cooking. This is very much a starter to get you thinking and questioning before we get started on the main course in part two, which is uh, about collecting and exhibiting food. 
As a collection-centred museum professional, this is very much the section that really grabbed me. In part two, we get tasters of successful food exhibitions, uh, think famous chefs and cookbook authors, but also various types of food heritage. The ones that spring to mind are, there was some stuff about Latino food in America and also uh, Native American food production. Uh, we also get familiar with the notion of dedicated food museums which aren't just about collecting, but also about producing and enjoying food. We also explore related themes such as hunger, trade, and uh, ultimately bioengineering. Part three focuses on audience engagement, food festivals to celebrate the heritage of cooking, uh, the resurrection of ancient recipes for people to try, and uh, ways of showing people how people have dined through the ages. Part four focuses on eating, Restaurants and cafes are certainly covered, but we also take what feels like a slight detour into how food is presented on plates and how chefs can feel inspired by art. These are fair enough, I suppose, it's just not my cup of proverbial tea. For dessert, we've got food and art in part five. Here we explore paintings of food, edible artworks, and the role of alcohol in the creative process. Much of this publication is plenty inspiring, and I have no doubt that it has a broad appeal with its many different angles and case studies. It offers nothing specifically for conservators, but I'd recommend giving it a read if you enjoy museology in general, particularly interpretation and audience engagement. I think a resounding message throughout this publication has been that food is an experience. It isn't about jars and tins in storage, but about recipes, smells, tastes and memories. Like all things in museums, food objects need narrative, and without it, the artefacts are just empty calories. Overall, I found this book quite an appetising read. Even the more academic papers were easy to digest, and the texts are peppered with puns way worse than mine, which means that you will definitely crack a smile or two as you read on. This book has 384 pages and uh, is available to buy from Bloomsbury directly. Uh, you can find it on Amazon and stuff like that as well. From the publisher, the hardback version costs £63 at the moment. Uh, and the paperback comes out in May next year, uh, which will cost more like £26. You can also find it on places like Amazon, etc. And I will pop a link to that in the show notes. Dear Jane, I've just started studying for Masters in Object Conservation, but I'm not sure what specialism I want to focus on. What advice could you give to a student that finds all materials fascinating, but worries to have to have a focused portfolio of work for when they graduate? Sincerely, M. Dear M, thanks for your inquiry. It's good to see that you're already planning your career in conservation at the beginning of your master's degree, and you're beginning to think about what specialism you might like to have. One of the things I suggest that you do is close your eyes and imagine yourself as a conservator. Look around the lab. What kind of lab is it? Is it big and white and shiny with empty desks and analytical equipment? Is it full of bits and pieces, bits of wood and tools? What do you see around you? Who are your colleagues? These sort of things might help you imagine your future career. But don't worry too much at this stage about specialising. As a student of objects conservation, what you should really be focusing on is what skills and tasks you can develop through a range of objects. If you get allocated a ceramic with a break, 
then you're not only learning how to repair ceramics and reading by Oakley, you're also learning about adhesive selection and choice and application techniques. And those skills will apply for almost every conservation task that you undertake. If you were allocated um, a social history item with some metal threads on it, then there's a whole range of analytical work that you might want to do to understand the threads, what they're coated with, and then choose very careful techniques to ensure that you clean the metals without damaging the underlying textile. As you grow as a conservator, for each task that you undertake, at the end of the task, reflect on what you've learned. Reflect not just on what materials you've worked on, but what skills, what techniques, and what theories you've developed in the course of your project. Those skills and theories will translate across a huge range of object conservation and beyond, and they should help you whatever you decide to do, whenever you decide to specialise. In my experience, you're quite early um, in your career, and it might be the case that even if you thought now that you definitely knew you definitely wanted to be a metals conservator, by the end of your degree, you might find that in fact, what you really want to be is a natural science conservator. I hope as part of your degree, you will have a work experience placement, and I'm sure this will help you make up your mind as well. So what I would say to you now is don't panic. Yes, you definitely do want to bring up a focused portfolio, but listen to the earlier podcast where conservators discuss what they look for portfolio when they do interviews. And what you'll hear is not, I'm looking for a particular material type. What you hear is that they're looking for conservators who can think through problems, who can diagnose conservation problems and come up with solutions that they can problematize. They can say, in this context, I would do this, but in this situation, I would change my adhesive because of the lighting in the case or where it was going to travel or the weight of the object. And so your ability to understand a range of parameters around your conservation decisions is really what's going to get you the job. And just to finish, really, I love the idea of specialising. You've joined a profession of a few tens of thousands of people. And yet, as a group, we talk about specialism within ourselves. Really, in the big wide world, as conservators, we're already pretty specialised. So don't worry too much about being any more. You've come a long way from the wide world to find yourself in conservation. You're pretty specialist. You're pretty niche already. Just work hard at the course, get as much from your experience as you can, get out there, volunteer and do placements, and I'm sure a specialism will find you. Over and out. Bonus review. Uh, You know how I talked about that Mondrian cake earlier? Well, I got myself a copy of that book too. This is Modern Art Desserts. Recipes for cakes, cookies, confections and frozen treats based on iconic works of art by Caitlin Freeman, published in 2013. So just to be clear, this is a cookbook. It's got a lovely introduction about the author's journey to make art into cake, her work at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which is where her cafe is based, and a whole chapter on the ingredients and equipment that she favours. But really, this is a book about cakes, uh, and also, very nicely, the art that inspired them. I actually love that she talks her through her inspirations and simultaneously makes me hungry and more erudite about contemporary art. It's something I know shamefully little about. The recipes are thorough and descriptive, uh, so that a non-professional pastry chef can make these edible artworks for themselves. Measurements are provided both in imperial and in metric, which I really appreciate as a European. The photos uh, also really help in a way that I wish, frankly, that more conservation articles did. 
while I haven't tried making these beauties yet, uh, I have to say that my favourites from the book would uh, be, well, other than the Mondrian cake, obviously, uh, would be the Liechtenstein cake, the Kudler s'mores and uh, the Woodman cheese and crackers. This book contains 35 recipes, of which 29 are arty ones, if I counted that right. Uh, it has 216 pages, and it's a really fun book for anyone who loves art, baking, or both. I got mine secondhand, but you can find this book in all sorts of places. Uh, on Amazon in the UK, it's currently about 20 quid for the hardcover version, new. Uh, you can also get the Kindle edition, if you don't mind getting batter on your Kindle. And then it's uh, $10.99. If you're in America, you can get it straight from the Blue Bottle Coffee store, in which case it's uh, $25. Presumably plus shipping, but don't quote me on that. Um, we'll pop some links in the show notes. Uh, this would probably make a great gift for someone who's really into this sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's just a really fun book and I thought I'd share. <laughs> And now for some comments, questions and corrections. As always, we love hearing from you. So please do email us or tweet us or let us know that you have thoughts. We love hearing from you. Uh, this time uh, we've had a couple of people share food policies, which is very in line with this episode. Now, unfortunately, we already recorded this episode by the time we got these submissions. So it's more likely that we'll talk about them in a future episode. But we just want you to know that we received it. We'd love to see more examples. So do send them in if you want to share. Just so you know, you're not forgotten about. We just can't discuss it in this episode. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about how to conference. In the meantime, check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at The C Word Podcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.